This is a post-Christian podcast. Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. He's not feeling well. He hardly slept at all last night. And uh, just not feeling too good. So keep him in your thoughts and prayers for physical and mental well-being for Pastor Jay. Hello, everybody. Now, yeah, this will be kind of tricky because I'll have to try to read y'all's comments at the end. I won't be able to keep track of them myself. I don't have my own Caleb. So, anyhow. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll go ahead and get started here. can't really banter with my with Jay because Jay's not here. I wish Jay were here because this is a really vulnerable talk uh, that I'm going to give. And I was kind of hoping he would be here for support whenever I ended up giving this talk um but but it's yeah it's, it's a very personal it's very personal um so for context i'm caleb uh i'm assistant pastor at revolution church and i don't use language like this often but it's i i feel comfortable in this situation saying i was called um because i moved here to minnesota from kansas Without a single exchange with Jay, without a word from Jay, without ever communicating with him. And um, I had emailed the church's uh, then email address, which I'd found on Revolution's Tumblr site, which was then all the church had uh, for a web presence, despite owning uh, the domain of revolutionchurch.com. Uh, they didn't have really a website and no one was responding to any emails or anything. But anyhow, I just kind of, I just up and moved here. And I, I suppose, um, yeah, if, if a calling is a thing, if one can be called, then I was called, uh, to move up here. So I was either called or crazy or maybe both, uh, which is why we are where we are here now and it's just kind of a wild thing and so i was just kind of reflecting on that um and yeah i'm reading a lot from my notes here because uh jay asked me i had about an hour to put this together um actually funny enough though um a dear friend who is watching live now did help me funnily enough um workshop through this a little bit um incidentally and then jay said that he was sick this morning and i was like well i've got this little uh, halfway put together talk. So anyway, it's a lot of notes, so please bear with me there. But um, yeah, let's get back into this. So about a year into my moving here, um, after eating lunch together, Jay and I, uh, at Taco Bell, of course, Jay broke down and told me through tears that the only reason that on that day, the only reason he believed in an interventionist God was the fact that I had turned up out of the blue just when I did, as the church was kind of in uh, on a downward tra- trajectory, and uh, Jay said it it wouldn't still exist, um, you know, if I hadn't just up and appeared right when I did, which in and of itself was just a crazy, you know, you know sporadic, spontaneous choice that I I made a y- very youthful, uh, arguably foolish decision. Um, but Jay's message of grace and inclusion and his fight 
for LGBTQIA plus rights really, really hit me um, right in the heart, kind of at point blank range, because I myself am bisexual, and I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist environment. And I do want to check my privilege and say that I was a white uh, cis male who could easily pass as a nice, safe, straight church boy. Um, I, am, I am just, you know, incidentally not a very flamboyant person um, by my nature. So I do want to check my privilege and say that also that growing up, in my mind, as a queer sinner in a reform theology, Calvinist-heavy school, church, and neighborhood, I experienced intense self-loathing. So I want to both check my privilege and, and, and say, yeah, I was a passing cisgendered uh, white guy, but um, being fed this reformed theology, I experienced a lot of self-loathing. I felt this need for justice, a need, I thought, to hurt myself as penance. How then can man be righteous before God, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Job 25, 4-6. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of man and despised by the people. Psalm 22, 6. So I would actually get into uh, debates and arguments with my peers and mentors and church leaders over the use of, of terms like good person or altruism because, you know, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. I loved quoting that verse all the time. I, I actively hated and, and despised myself and and had scripture to back it up in my head. And so I, I, I quoted these verses to myself all the time and actively hated and despised myself for multiple reasons, not least of which my sexuality. And so being stuck in such a vicious cyclical storm of guilt over an incidental uh, personality trait that I couldn't change... I've spoken before with plenty of young queer Christians and heard countless stories, uh, the type of stories that are unfortunately probably really familiar to all of you, about young queer Christians deeply involved and invested in their church and church community and culture being rejected and targeted and hurt and wounded by their peers, their mentors, even their families. And there's such a high suicide rate of, uh, of queer people in the church. And these people received, uh, you know, so much of this targeting because they were brave enough to come out. Or, sadly, they were outed by someone or rejected and pushed away by their own spiritual community and their own family. And I personally, you know, because I do a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews and stuff like that, I've talked to lots of queer folks who've told me specifically that the only reason they left the church was because of how they were treated when their orientation became public. And I'm surprised by that every time because I always ask, well, what made you deconstruct your faith? Like, what philosophies 
made you deconvert? What led what your what views about God changed? What about your theology or your worldview changed? And I've heard it so many times them say back just simply and it shocks me. They say no, no theology shift. I left the church and Christianity altogether, the faith of my childhood and my family. I left because I was hurt by the people that I trusted and that I loved. Nothing in me changed. Nothing at all. I was just more honest with the people that I trusted and I loved. And I was rejected. And people tell me they left only because of of that treatment. And a lot of those young people that I've talked to will never go back inside of a church. Because it's too triggering. And who can blame them? Uh, Who can't sympathize with that sentiment of that strong, deep-cutting betrayal by the people that, that they love, by their mentors, by their friends, by their family even, just shamed and, and cast aside, not shown love, not shown what the church calls, not shown Christ. I recently shared an exchange with an online congregation member that is very relevant to this talk in a couple different ways. I was wanting to read the actual DMs that she had sent, but I didn't get her permission in time, so I'll leave her nameless. But uh, And I won't read her actual message. I'll read my response here in a second. But basically, uh, she came to me with the situation. Her, her daughter is really confused, uh, being pulled strongly in two different directions right now. At school, she's a great ally for the queer community, and she's very outspoken and very active. She even helped a fellow classmate who was struggling with suicidal ideation because of their sexual identity and helped them get the help that they needed to not hurt themselves in a, in a very situation. And so she's very outspoken and very active and uh, has a really uh, strong heart for the marginalized and the victim. But we'll call the woman who wrote me this message, we'll call her, uh, let's call her T. So T's mother, the young girl's grandmother, is just on fire as an outspoken fundamentalist who actively finds and creates situations where she can make hateful homophobic remarks about damnation, about the wicked way of the queers, and uh, you know the gay agenda. Um, and, and the little girl loves and respects her grandmother, and so she's torn by these two opposing sets of ethics. And so I responded back to T, and I am going to just go ahead and read my response, because uh, that would be simpler, I believe. I said, I find it undeniably commendable and admirable that you have raised such a smart and loving and inclusive daughter who follows her heart and that you're so encouraging to her to follow her own convictions and her own sensibilities of the nature of the divine and how God views her and will judge her, or rather justly reward her. Encouraging her to follow her inner voice, the intimate voice of the divine, is invaluable. Asking her things like, are the doubts and guilt and insecurities you feel about specific questions of morality, like the LGBTQIA plus issues, are those internal or external issues and guilt that you're experiencing? Is the voice that you hear questioning these ethics internal 
Is it of your true nature, of your your uh, conscience, the divine kind of inner voice, or are they external? Are they of society and institutions and rhetoric of some indoctrinated people? Are they essentially, it's kind of harsh to say, but are they from God or are they from grandma? And as, as for grandma, it's great that she is such an active part of your family life. That's a massive blessing. And also setting up basic simple boundaries with your mother is not inappropriate. It's plain adult and important. You can tell her that her granddaughter knows what she thinks about these issues. She doesn't have to keep restating over and over her disapproval and and negativity. Her beliefs are common knowledge. Also, you are a mother now yourself. Uh, You're a great mother, and it's great your own mom is there to serve whatever role she's serving, and she is a part of your family unit, unit. But you are a mom, and you raise your kids your way. And that's the response that I gave her, which I think kind of boils down just essentially the takeaway is internal conviction, which in Christianese, of the spirit, internal conviction versus external conviction, which in Christianese, of the flesh. So of the spirit versus of the flesh. And in uh, in the book of John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, so notoriously a uh, fundamentalist religious zealot who is notoriously against Jesus's uh, more open, loving, less rule-based approach to Judaism. So Nicodemus, he was actually a ruler. He was higher up Pharisee. And he, he came to Jesus at night, of course, coming in um, to this rogue rabbi in secret in the cover of darkness. And um, he asked about seeing the kingdom of God. My appreciation of understanding the kingdom of God has come to being less of an afterlife thing and more of a thing that is material and present and and pressing and needs to be built now. Like the, the things that we are amending in this world and the laws that we are amending and things like that, I hope those amendments are approaching the kingdom of heaven in Christianese. So Nicodemus asks, how do I see the kingdom of heaven? And in John 3, 5, Jesus tells him, to see the kingdom and to enter the kingdom, residing there in manifested love, to, to, to enter the kingdom, you must be born again of water and the spirit. And being born again here results in an internal discernment through communion with the Spirit, this internal divine presence. And then Christ goes on to say, the flesh is born of flesh, and Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So flesh of flesh is the external ethics that are often mindlessly taught without any intelligent analysis or critique. And it may be incidental if a person is ignorant or unexposed to have not have challenged these external ethics that they've learned. And then there's spirit of spirit, which is the internal ethics that are fruits of the spirit, that grow from the spirit in us, from the connections and internal communions that we have with the divine spirit. 
and that can dwell in and possess us and renew us. It, usually, I think in in kind of small fragments, in bursts, in spontaneous combustion moments, almost when we experience that true uh, expression of love. So it can uh, reside in us and make us kind of spiritually reborn beings, um, and it's sometimes experienced as what we refer to as a conscience. It helps us to to feel what is right, or of love, or of the light, or of Christ. And the experience had by so many queer Christian youth when they, who are born-again children of the divine spirit, born of the spirit, when they follow their convictions and what they know, what their experiential understanding of who they are as revealed to them by the Spirit, and they tell their authorities, their parents, their elders, their mentors, an innate trait about themselves that is an attribute of theirs and that always has been, that is really just incidental and is also permanent, and it's a descriptor of theirs. And they tell them that they happen to be queer, and the authority has a knee-jerk reaction, a communication of disapproval, almost dispensing the value, disposing of the value of of this um, mali or you know um, very easily influenced uh, young person who's who's just being honest uh, when and when the authority has that knee jerk communication of disapproval and dissatisfaction and disappointment just because the young person was honest just about a, about a thing that has always been there a tint a feature of them an attribute of theirs that reaction by the authority of disappointment and rejection that experience is created and sparked and stoked kind of like flames and then engaged with or participated in and that is not god that feels sick and dirty and hateful and and gross and you feel betrayed. It is not God. It does not resemble God. But I'll, I'll tell you a reaction that does resemble God and that is of love. After coming out to your father, him taking a day to think and pray, and then coming to you the next day with tears in his eyes and embracing you tightly and saying through his sobs, I'll always love you. Nothing will ever change that. And that is that is what love looks like, and that is what I experienced, and that is I, what God looks like. Um, and that is active love, that is participatory love, that is participation in the event of God, that is creating love, participating in love, creating God, participating in God. And in this realm of discourse about queer issues in the church, there are a lot of familiar phrases that come up. The worst, um, undoubtedly, uh, in, in, in regards to what I'm specifically talking about, is conversion therapy. Um, just an evil practice. I'll point you to a couple of other post-Christian podcast episodes. Um, a member of ours, a physical member of our congregation, Robert, has done a couple of episodes about his personal experience going through conversion therapy. He checked himself in. You know, didn't want to go to hell. 
and I don't want to tell his his story for him at all, but um, you can look that up on uh, any podcasting app. Sacred Collective is the name of the podcast, and Robert has an episode called uh, Conversion Therapy. Um, but it is gross shit. Uh, so that's one kind of buzzword that we hear coming up in, uh, especially in the evangelical church. Uh, and then another phrase we hear a lot is life of celibacy. Oh, if you're gay, then just live a life of celibacy. Another phrase we hear a lot is all things are possible. That kind of goes back to the whole conversion therapy. All things are possible through God. You can be fixed, lay hands on you. Uh, another thing that we hear a lot is it's a choice. And so I'd like to now kind of try to step back from my personal story, my personal narrative, my personal circumstances, and just kind of look at this and break it down to a very simple, reduced, basic logic. What if it were a choice? Okay, let's say that it is a choice to be gay, and your sibling is making a choice that does not hurt themselves, doesn't hurt you, doesn't hurt anyone in and of itself, makes them happy... How does it resemble Christ, then, to react in hateful disappointment and hurtful judgment? And maybe this is, uh, you know, kind of a simple one-dimensional example. So let's take a step back even further. Let's assume that being gay is a sin, okay? And that this, it's it's huge because gay people aren't just sinning, God hates them. Okay, there's a lot of people who think this. Let's assume this is true. How does it look like Christ to harbor and cling to such hate, even if it is a sin, to the extreme degree of conviction and dedication and deciding to organize and mobilize with picket signs, with hurtful, hateful slurs, saying it's not that God wants the lost to change and be converted in these special therapies or to live celibate lives, not even offering a seat at their table for a conversation, but rather that God hates fags. And pardon my French, I cringe saying that word, but there's so much negative power in that word. There are so many... Queer people who have had the shit beat out of them while that word was being screamed at them. There's so many people who've been intimately hurt that I just think it's important to not forget the danger of that weapon, of that word. When would Christ ever use that horrible slur? How does that look like Christ? How is that God? Instructing and cultivating self-loathing that often leads to suicide. What are these picketers? What are these fundamentalists? I mean, I know all fun. I know all fundamentalists are not like this. Thank you, Thomas. I see Thomas saying we're not all Westboro. Yeah, uh, I know everyone's not Westboro. But how does Westboro look like Christ? I know that's an extreme example. Thank you for pointing that out, Thomas. Um, I do like to always try to give disclaimers when that's the case. Um, but still, I didn't attend, uh, you know, Westboro. But I attended, uh, you know, a, a Southern Baptist church in the in the Bible Belt. And I was still being told those, those same messages. Uh, and I still 
hated myself and um, thought that there was something wrong with me and I had to get fixed. I didn't even acknowledge that I was bi. I was I was attracted, uh, you know, to to guys in my you know little I don't know third grade class or whatever. But just thought it was a it was you know a demon on my back or something. It, it's it's toxic. Anyhow, that's the state of denial that I was in. But yeah, so yeah, you can get these messages even from places that aren't as extreme as as Westboro. Um, Instructing and cultivating any sort of self-loathing. When did Christ ever do that? Even if all these doctrinal assumptions are true, which I don't think they are, if you can't guess, but we're not talking about that. Even if they are true, does that look like Christ? That is not God. That is not participating in the event of love, in the event of God. I don't know what that is participating in, what it resembles, maybe anti-Christ, anti-God, creating and participating in the event of anti-Christ, which is effectively building hell, Westboro, building hell, when we should be building the kingdom. And uh, my close friend... I think I can say who my close friend is, but I've not asked their permission. But um, when I was kind of brainstorming, workshopping through this, not realizing I'd be using this today, of course, but um, uh, my, my, my friend encouraged me to ask, what does the kingdom look like for a queer person? Um, and so I think for, for me... And, of course, I want to say this. Not, what does the kingdom look like for all queer people? But, um, what does it look like for me, I guess? You know, one being no, obviously no binaries. And that's kind of a kitschy thing to say. But it leads to actually being fully known. Not by identity labels that are larger than ourselves, as my friend put it. So, like, saying, not that I am bi, but that I am Caleb. So, like, you know, kind of like in Galatians 3.28, the whole male nor female. In, in the kingdom of heaven, there's male nor female. That says to me, in an, in an ideal world, we appreciate and have the capacity to see and to appreciate the spectrum of all things. I want to say this, too. Um, to say the male nor female thing not as a loss of identity, but... Rather, seen as a person whose identity is so intricate and beautiful, the simple labels can only approximate and barely approximate who or what we actually are. You know, we're snowflakes. We're so intricate. And, of course, language is utilitarian, and we, and we use it, and we need it, because otherwise we'd be talking like, what is it, the, the Ents tree beard in... Um, in Lord of the Rings, like, using massive words, a sentence takes, like, a year to say. But, you know, in an ideal an ideal world, we're talking ideals. I wouldn't be, you know, bi, I would just be Caleb. In an ideal, in the kingdom, let's keep going with that. In the kingdom, an old story of a straight high school sweetheart conservative couple, their love story 
would be just as vibrant and intriguing as that of a, a brave transhuman who raised three kids alone. And we can you know really see uh, not just as beautiful. I, I, that now that I said that out loud, that God, that sounds pretty bad. I, I I don't mean like as like comparable, like as difficult, but like seeing the marginalized and the non-marginalized and and appreciating and seeing each other fully and outside of labels and beyond labels and any label being a personalized label maybe a word that i made up you gotta learn all my words that i made up (laughs) but uh i think also i said this before in the kingdom i don't want pride parades to have to be a thing anymore in the kingdom you know i don't want us to have to call attention to marginalized people because they won't be marginalized in order to build a kingdom where we do have true equality we have to do a lot of work concentrating on the problems of inequality so in an ideal world obviously we would have done all of that work in the kingdom we have done all of that work and so we no longer need to call attention to Uh, these issues into these marginalized things. Um, Identity isn't unimportant or erased. It is just celebrated. Something greater than the label that holds them together. Oh, yeah. No hierarchy. That, too. That's a whole other thing. I was thinking about talking about the hierarchies that exist within the queer community, but that would be a whole other thing. So I'm going to wrap up my talk there. I'll respond to any questions or comments um physically just me my roommate and my cat right now here so i'll scroll through y'all online and i think mongo's been making comments throughout the whole sermon (laughs) (laughs) meows yeah i think they were amens mostly (laughs) (laughs) lots of nice words here people i hear you love you so much thank you Thank you for saying this. You speak with wisdom. Oh, thank you, Thomas. Uh, Imposed conviction. What was that responding to, Selena? I like that term. Imposed. Oh, imposed conviction. Like faking? Oh, you're probably talking about the flesh thing, the uh, external guilt or whatever. Uh, Thomas said, like I mentioned earlier, I acknowledged this comment earlier. Thomas said, we're not all Westboro. But I lament the tendency to not speak out against that spirit. Uh, Yeah, and... I know that all fundamentalists and conservatives and Protestants are not Westboro, and I don't mean do not mean to say that at all. And I have loved ones and family members who are conservative and fundamentalist, and um, and disprove of me. And um, I love them with all my heart. Uh, let's see, then we got some little conversations going, internal conversations here. Uh, Thomas says. In some ways, it's worse that churches who are not as visible, oh yeah, not as visible as Westboro as it is an insidious part of our culture. Sorry you had to go through that. God gave you an important witness and equipped your ministry. I think maybe he's talking to Zoe there. And Zoe said, no, we can't just act like it is just Westboro. This hurt goes deep even when the message isn't that blatant. Very true. A lot of churches are good at hiding their uh, homophobia or, or heteronormatism. Um, norm- normativism? Or, uh, this hurt goes deeper when the message isn't that blatant. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, 
It goes deep when the hate comes as the face slap of love the sinner but hate the sin. I hate that. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Hate, 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 hate that phrase. Um, It's like, but. It's like, um, yeah, Hitler was an evil guy, but he was a great public speaker. Like, okay. What's your point? Cheryl said to Thomas, love you, friend, don't feel attacked. We're all accepted here, you know. And I know, Cheryl, you're conservative as well. No need to defend. Okay, so that's good. Just everyone's making making nice amongst themselves. Oh, yeah, Roberta said, how do you respond to someone who says, love the sinner but hate the sin? It's irritating. I guess my response is always, what's your point? Like, what are you pointing to? Okay, love the sinner but hate the sin. It's like with the Hitler thing. When you say, but he was a good speaker, he was a good public speaker. What? You, okay, but what's your point? What are you pointing at? Like, love the sinner, but but hate the sin. Remember, hate the sin. Um, I guess someone who thinks like that, how do you respond to that? You're probably not going to get through to them, no matter what you do say. It seems like a cop-out. It seems like a cop-out, definitely. It's like a cop-out for having a hateful view, it feels like, to me at least. That's a great point, Yeah. And it, it's yeah, it is. It is almost like it's almost like justifying. Right. I hate that you're yeah. gay, and I hate that you have this alternative lifestyle that I don't agree with. Uh huh. But but I still love you. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Right. 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 That's t- totally some bullshit. And that's Nick, my roommate, giving us some insight there. Totally, fully, fucking agree. <laughs> no, you're not interrupting. You're con- you're contributing. Uh oh, it's Ray responding back to Roberta again. Uh, it presumes homosexuality to be a sin. If they're a thinking person, I'll challenge that concept. If they're not, I just show my disdain for it, knowing a debate with them would be futile. I agree. Yeah. Yes. And then Zoe said, oh, Zoe's putting in this in quotes. Sorry. Okay, I will love you despite your anti-gay hatred. You can't love a queer person and hate their queerness it is an essential part of our being you can choose not be anti-queer i am queer hi nick says zo okay (laughs) cool all right awesome well thank you everybody um jay hopefully be back next week and um we're gonna pump out some more meet your congos and hopefully a Q and A with Jay video session. And if you have any questions for those, you can you can even get it answered today if you email it quick enough to questionsforrevolution at gmail dot com. Questionsforrevolution at gmail dot com. And uh, yeah, I love y'all and talk to y'all later. Goodbye. We'd like to remind you that our ministry is supported 100% by listeners like you. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com slash donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website. If you enjoyed this show, you might also like The Sacred Collective. We are The Sacred Collective. Join us. We need more, more voices, I think, to kind of get up and say this is not okay. For sure. Yeah. Cool. Start with your article and we'll interrupt you. All right. So my article is just basically my story. And I'll write, um, read it. And you guys stop me anytime and ask me questions. Perfect. All right. Most people didn't know that at one point in my life, I checked myself into conversion therapy. I recount my memories or the lack thereof. 
The dangers of gay conversion therapy, also called reparative therapy, has been brought to light in the wake of Gerard Conley's memoir, Boy Erased, and now the twice-nominated Golden Globe movie. Besides the numerous articles outlining this dangerous practice, the film acted as a catapult for personal stories from ex-gay therapy survivors like myself. I remember sitting in a theater watching the film with my husband and friends unable to move. My husband must have sensed my tension because he tried to gently hold my hand, but they remained motionless, clenched at my sides throughout its entirety. I couldn't move. I never spoke about my experience with how I checked myself into gay conversion therapy. Most of my friends don't even know that part of my life. It was a weekend night when I came home from work and I walked into the house where I noticed both my parents in the kitchen. I've done it almost every day, but this time around, things seemed different. The air was tense and I could feel something impending. Walking into the kitchen, I saw my mom fervently washing the dishes quietly with her back towards me. My dad sitting next to the table with one leg over the other quietly looking down. My eyes traveled to the rectangular object on the table and my heart stopped. There, laying on the kitchen table, was a gay porn falcon video I stashed in my room, adorned with butch leathermen on every surface of the VHS tape sleeve. My heart, stopped, my heart stopped and dropped, and my surroundings began spinning in slow motion. I was caught, and there was no getting out of it. I was closeted and still living with my conservative Romanian Pentecostal parents, because in my culture, you don't move out until you're married. Needless to say, all my friends at the time got married in their early 20s, and I was still look a good Christian boy waiting for the right girl. Quotes. My parents took me to the garage and ordered me to smash the VHS tape to pieces with a hammer while they prayed to cast out any gay demons in the name of Jesus. My mom didn't speak of the event again, and my dad told me to, quote, just stop being gay. <laughs> if it were possible, I would have. But I couldn't, and I didn't. I was living a double life where at church, I was a good Christian boy. While on my free time, I'd sneak away with men I'd meet online or at the bar. I was miserable, depressed, and torn. There had to be a way out of it, I thought. That's when I stopped by the local Christian bookstore. I peered through the shelves in the men's section, looking cool and casual on the outside, while my stomach was in knots on the inside. Topics of how to be a godly man, sexual purity, fatherhood, warriors, sports, etc. took precedence. Then there it was. Tucked away was the book on how to break free from the, quote, bondage of homosexuality. That was a post-Christian podcast.